0: Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing make sure you follow at UseconPodcast on Twitter. All right, now for the history of U.S. economics. To this point in the podcast, I've tried to stay more or less along a chronological narrative. I wanted to tack tariffs onto the last episode, but I think it's better to discuss America's relationship with tariffs in large chunks instead of fragmenting them into a dozen different episodes. That said, we'll start with the Tariff Act of 1789 and go on to consider America's history with tariffs until the Civil War. In a later episode, we'll attack tariffs from the Civil War until the present day, but it's just too out of context to approach tariffs in the 1990s, right now while we're still somewhere back in the early 1800s, but we'll get to it. Tariffs are taxes placed on imported goods. They can be either revenue-generating, protectionist, or both. There are strategic, populist, and economic reasons why tariffs are applied. When tariffs are low, this means that only a small tax is added onto an imported good the tax necessarily increases the price of that imported good, which makes that good less competitive compared to domestically produced goods. Because, of course, domestically produced goods wouldn't have tariffs applied to them because they obviously aren't imported. Thinking from the 50,000-foot level, tariffs come in a couple of different flavors, depending on how high the tariff is. For instance, a small tariff, perhaps under 10%, is probably more of a revenue-generating measure on the part of the government. Basically, the government is saying something like, well, we don't want to totally disrupt this market, but we do want to profit a little bit whenever goods are imported, so we'll throw a little tariff on there. But tariffs can also be really high and become what economists call protective tariffs. These tariffs might be 20% or 35% or something. It's just a tax that's tacked onto the price of the imported good. There is not a fixed percentage for when a tariff becomes protective, but suffice it to say that a tariff becomes protective at whatever level it begins to make foreign goods less competitive compared to domestically produced goods. For example, if the government decided it wanted to stimulate the US steel industry, it might slap a 25% tariff onto steel imported from other countries. This would effectively protect the domestic steel companies from foreign competition. The goal of this tariff might also be to generate revenue for the federal government, but the objective of really high tariffs usually isn't to create government revenue, it's to protect and stimulate domestic industry. This makes sense, of course, because a tariff like 25% will probably cause foreign steel to become uncompetitive with American steel, so imports of it can be expected to drop. But if the imports go down significantly, then the tariff will fail to produce much government revenue, but the tariff would still succeed at protecting American steel companies. Now, my apologies, but let me complicate matters just a little bit more for you. It's also important what price American steel is before the tariff is applied. I mean, imagine Chinese steel costs $1 per foot or something, and American steel costs $1.25 per foot. In that case, a 25% tariff would only increase Chinese steel to $1.25 per foot, right in line with American producers. Clearly, the goal of a price hike like that isn't to price Chinese steel out of the market, though it's still protectionist, and in this case it's probably a federal revenue generator as well, because Chinese steel will probably continue to be imported at that price. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is that there isn't a hard and fast rule about when tariffs become protectionist. It depends on the market and the prices of goods. Here's another example. Let's assume imported coffee and American-grown coffee cost about the same. Then say the U.S. government taxed a 3% tariff onto imported coffee. Well, a 3% change in the price probably won't price imported coffee out of the market, and that's not really the tariff's objective anyway. A 3% tariff's objective is just to make some money for the federal government from all the coffee that's being brought into the US. However, if the US government tacked a 35% tax on imported coffee, that would almost certainly be a protectionist tariff. A tariff that large would make importing foreign coffee way too expensive compared to domestic coffee growers. The government's objective in that case of a 35% tariff probably isn't to profit from imported coffee because the tariff alone will cause imports to drop. The goal of a high tariff like that is to stimulate U.S. coffee growers. Domestic coffee producers who otherwise couldn't compete with imported coffee might now have a chance to develop. Using tariffs, the government can shape the direction of American industry. And there's a national security component to protective tariffs as well. If America is lacking, say, domestic gunpowder producers, it could benefit the country if the Fed slap a 40% tariff onto foreign gunpowder. This way, American gunpowder manufacturers can develop, and the nation as a whole becomes less dependent on foreign countries for imported wartime supplies. So let's switch from the government's perspective to that of American businessmen and businesswomen, and that of investors. Consider this example. Imagine the year is 1793, and America has very little domestic industry aside from agriculture, which was the case in that year. You're an enterprising American with some money at your disposal, and you're looking for business opportunities in which to invest. For a moment, you consider investing in the construction of a textile manufacturing plant. After all, Eli Whitney's cotton gin was just invented, and cotton is now being grown with reckless abandon in much of the South. But then you realize that the English city of Lancaster, the destination of most US cotton grown at the time, has been processing cotton into textiles for years, and it can do so with industrialized efficiency. The textiles England ships back to the US are cheap, they're high quality, and they seem impossible to outcompete. Daunted by the slim odds of outcompeting an established and mature industry with your startup, you move on to investing in something with greater prospects of success, a cotton plantation for instance, which just concentrates America's industry further. Multiply this dynamic by every investor looking for opportunities, and you end up with a country that is a highly concentrated economy. However, as America learned after the British blockade, being reliant on foreign imports for staples and weapons can be a national security risk. Congress recognized this. They also recognized that imposing a blanket tariff on imports would generate substantial income for the central government. From Congress's perspective, tariffs were a win-win. The tariffs foster domestic industry by making foreign goods more expensive than their American-made counterparts, making young American industries like textiles and manufacturing a more attractive investment since those industries' risk of failure is lessened. All of this promotes domestic economic growth, and makes the country more self-sustaining, and decreases unemployment, and it promotes investment in the U.S. On the other hand, where domestic goods can't fill American demand, foreign goods are still available for purchase, just at a higher price. This might sound great, but there are some downsides to tariffs, too. We'll consider four of those downsides here. The first is that consumers have to pay more for goods when tariffs are applied. Without cheap foreign substitutes, more expensive domestically produced goods will fill the void. This means the price level of goods will increase in aggregate at the expense of the consumer. The second downside of tariffs are the well-known risk of trade wars. Foreign countries don't appreciate it when America slaps ad valorem taxes onto their goods, and in many cases foreign countries will respond with tariffs of their own on American goods. The price level of all goods being tariffed will increase because the tariff makes purchasing foreign goods more expensive relative to the domestically produced counterparts. As I mentioned, it is possible to enact a tariff that does not significantly increase the cost of foreign goods above the domestically produced counterpart, but that depends on how protectionist the administration behind the tariffs is feeling. The third drawback of tariffs is that they can have the effect of discouraging innovation. Because a tariff lowers the competition of domestic markets by pricing out foreign goods, there is less pressure on domestic industries to innovate. One of the universal pressures of capitalism is the constant need to innovate in order to make better products at a lower cost, increasing market share, fattening profit margins along the way. But tariffs obstruct the pressure to compete. This isn't necessarily bad. If the tariff promotes domestic industry where there previously was no industry at all, then domestic competition can still exist, but cutting out foreign competitors will certainly lessen the need to innovate and outcompete. For example, if there's little to no textile industry in the United States, tariffing foreign imports can help grow the seeds of American textile plants by reducing competition. But if the government prices the strongest competitor out of the market simply because they are foreign, then domestic industry might go complacent instead of trying to dethrone that strongest competitor through innovation. The fourth drawback of tariffs is that they create what economists call a deadweight loss. Imagine the equilibrium price for imported bananas is, say, 75 cents per pound but then the government enacts a tariff and moves the cost of imported bananas up to one dollar per pound. Well, now we have an inefficiency. Fewer consumers are willing to buy bananas at that price, and that loss in sales is a deadweight loss. In other words, it's the value lost in a system because the price of a good has been pushed out of equilibrium. In this case, the consumer bears the brunt of the deadweight loss, but that isn't how it always is. Deadweight losses occur whenever a price control is implemented, and in plenty of cases the consumers and the producers can both be hit, like what often happens in the labor market when price controls are instituted, what we commonly call minimum wage laws. Or producers might bear the brunt of a deadweight loss, like what happens when price controls are implemented in real estate, more commonly known as rent control. The takeaway is that whenever markets are thrown out of equilibrium by a price control, such as a tariff, someone, be it the producer or the consumer, is going to lose. And that loss is called the deadweight loss. In short, the four major drawbacks of tariffs are that they increase the price level for consumers, they can induce trade wars, they can remove the incentive to innovate, and they create a loss of value to the market due to price inefficiency, called a deadweight loss. The reason why we're talking about tariffs now is because following the writing of the Constitution, the first act of Congress was a tariff. James Madison navigated the Tariff Act of 1789 to passage in the Congress in that year. The major hopes behind the tariff were to create a revenue source for the new government and ostensibly promote domestic industry. Throughout the Revolutionary War, the U.S.'s dependence on foreign goods became painfully clear after the British blockade. The war also made obvious America's total manufacturing inferiority compared to the British, two things which Congress thought they could help through a tariff. Promoting the domestic economy with a uniform tariff and tapping into the source of revenue it represented were the first priorities of the new legislative body. The tariff of 1789 applied a 9% average tax to nearly all imported goods including gunpowder, anything made of iron, all clothing, coffee, teas, and beer to name a few. The tariff passed the House, with 31 voting in favor and 19 against. This is significant because even with its first act, Congress opened a divide between northern and southern states. As we'll find out, the South regularly opposed tariffs, along with most policies that expanded the federal government's power. The South, being the largest revenue source for the country with its prolific tobacco plantations and soon its booming cotton plantations, was opposed to laws that would interfere with international trade. The factories in the English city of Lancaster, as I mentioned earlier, were the largest buyers of Southern-grown cotton, and a full 50% of tobacco grown was also shipped to England. The risk of trade wars was not lost on Southern delegates, and upsetting that profitable apple cart was not in their interest. Many Southern representatives aligned themselves with Thomas Jefferson's Democratic-Republican party, the party which represented the Southern farming class and opposed centralizing power to the hands of the government. But in the opposing corner, Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Party represented many in the Northern business class who championed the tariffs. The South was so opposed to tariffs that South Carolina was nearly invaded by a sitting U.S. President after it openly ignored tariff laws. More on that in a moment when we discuss the Tariff of Abominations. For now though, the South begrudgingly tolerated the tariffs so as not to tear asunder the newly formed nation. As an appeasement, the North accepted tariffs on goods they critically needed for their manufacturing base. The era of tariffs which we're considering, from the years of 1789 to 1860, were characterized by increasing protectionism until the 1840s, which then dissipated somewhat until the Civil War in the 1860s. Where the tariff of 1789 laid a 9% average tax on virtually all imported goods, the War of 1812 caused a doubling of the tariffs. This increase was largely a response to the cash needs of the federal government due to the ongoing war with the British at the time. But the rates were never reduced following the war, stoking southern opposition, which then rose to a simmer as the tariff of 1816 expanded the existing tariff's purview, increasing some up to 30%. Despite their obvious protectionist goals, historians note that the effect these tariffs had on directing American industry was marginal, considering the larger events taking place in Europe at the time, namely the Napoleonic Wars. The European war caused demand for American manufactured goods to skyrocket and without doubt overshadowed the effects that any tariffs had on stimulating or directing American industry. Later, the John Quincy Adams administration pushed the Tariff of 1828 through Congress, better known as the Tariff of Abominations. It was so called because the tariff was not intended to generate revenue, no, it was a political move aimed at stimulating industry. It clearly protected northern business interests while the price level of goods correspondingly rose, especially goods in the south. Furthermore, few industries in the south were protected, leading to them feeling like they were paying the price of northern business expansion without reaping any of the benefits. At this point, southern tensions moved from a simmer to a boil. South Carolina responded to the Tariff of Abominations when John C. Calhoun, a former senator from South Carolina, and interestingly the sitting vice president, penned a letter that rejected the tariffs and nullified them within his state. The nullification crisis, as it came to be known in 1832-1833, to led to South Carolina denying the tariffs, taking up arms, and preparing for a federal invasion. Congress responded by passing the Force Bill of 1833, which permitted the now-president, Andrew Jackson, to send in the Army to enforce the tariffs. Now, as fun as it would have been to have watched the President launch a civil war against his own sitting Vice President, Congress soon passed the Compromise Tariffs of 1833, which lowered the level of tariffs, appeasing South Carolina and averting military conflict. Regardless, the nullification crisis is widely considered to have been a precursor to the Civil War in the 1860s. We know these tariffs caused great internal dissension, but how did they affect U.S. industry as a whole? According to Frank Tausig's book, The Tariff History of the United States, he argues that high tariffs had a great effect on helping the young manufacturing industry lay its roots. Furthermore, after the extremely high tariffs of 1842, various American industries flourished, especially the iron industry, which Tausig considers in-depth in his book. The Tariff of 1842, remembered as the Black Tariff, effectively reversed the Compromise Tariff which had been used to deflate the nullification crisis and raise tariffs to nearly 40% on most goods. But the Black Tariff was quickly repealed in 1846, partially due to port cities losing almost half of their import volume under the Black Tariff's ultra-protectionist policies. The Black Tariff was replaced by the Walker Tariff, which simplified and reduced import taxes to only 25%. As a demonstration of the tit-for-tat nature of tariff policies, voting on the Walker Tariff was withheld until news of Britain's repeal of the Corn Laws reached the States. The Corn Laws, active in Britain in the early 1800s, were an extremely high import tax placed on wheat and grains coming into Britain. The tax was so high that it effectively priced American wheat out of the British market, and amazingly, the British upheld this tariff even in the face of food shortages on the island. In 1846, though, the British repealed the Corn Laws, inducing the US Congress to repeal the Black Tariff in the same year and lowering American import duties. The Walker Tariffs lowered the level of protectionism to one of the lowest levels in the 19th century. This low protectionism continued when the Walker Tariffs were again reduced as low as 15% on some goods under the Tariff of 1857. Throughout the 1850s, the government experienced a surplus fueled largely by extraordinary income from massive land sales in the West. Southern delegates, seizing the opportunity to lower import duties while the going was good, successfully agitated to reduce the tariffs. In light of land sale revenues and the deteriorating political situation between North and South, the North capitulated and tariffs were reduced in 1857. But then the Civil War broke out in 1861 and everything changed. Okay, that was a lot. Let me give you a quick overview of everything we just talked about. If you were to graph the levels of protectionism over time during the first period of tariffs from 1789 to 1860, that line would basically look like a capitalized M. It would start low with the tariffs of 1789 and then peak in 1832 around the Tariff of Abominations. The line would then drop some during the Compromise Tariffs of 1833, but then peak again with the Black Tariffs of 1842. From there, the line would gradually descend until 1860. Protectionism started low, was progressively tightened, loosened momentarily, tightened again, and then gradually reduced until the start of the Civil War. Now we get to consider the tariff history throughout the Civil War, from 1861 to 1865, a period marked by aggressive protectionism in the north, and basically free trade down in the south. With the secession, northern politicians didn't waste any time reverting tariff policy back to near its previous highs. In 1861, just three months after the South seceded in December of 1860, Representative Justin Morrill pushed what came to be known as the Morrill Tariffs through Congress. The Morrill Tariffs, combined with revisions throughout the war, forced tariffs up as high as 48% on some goods. As we know, business in the North was largely focused on manufacturing and industry, while the South focused more on agriculture. When it came to global competition, the North had to contend with the thoroughly industrialized British mainland, while Europeans were the largest consumers of Southern-grown cotton. This dynamic put Northern and Southern business interests immediately at odds when it came to tariffs. Northern capitalists wanted high tariffs to remove British industrial competition from the American market. But Southern farmers, on the other hand, continued to want low tariffs so as not to spark a trade war which might interfere with the torrent of money flowing from Europe to the Southern states. The South further disliked tariffs because if a tariff raised the price of, say, textiles, that directly lowered the quantity of textiles demanded in the U.S. Lower quantity of imported textiles demanded meant lower quantity of cotton demanded from the South. After secession, the Confederate Congress in the South promptly lowered taxes in their region to as low as 5% on imported goods. While in the North, the moral tariffs were progressively tightening in an effort to generate revenue for the federal government. The craziness of Civil War-era economics and finance will get its time in the spotlight in a later episode, but as for tariffs during this era, the North became increasingly protectionist and revenue-oriented, while the South gravitated towards free trade. In the North, taxes of all varieties – income taxes, sales taxes, manufacturing taxes, and licensing fees – were levied to pay for the war. But revenue from these sources and others, including the mass printing of a brand new currency called the greenback, proved not to be enough to fuel the all-consuming Union war machine. Thus, in 1862, and again in 1864, Morrill pushed further tariffs through Congress. The effect these tariffs had was immense protectionism, but Morrill sold these tariffs less as a revenue generator and more as concessions to the American manufacturing industry, which was being aggressively taxed. Morrill, though, ever the savvy operator, was playing both sides of the field. The wartime taxes placed on manufacturers aggravated the business class, but the tariffs on foreign competition appeased them. Both, however, raised revenues for the Union war effort. Duties on imports during the war rose from 37% under Morrill's first effort to 47% by his last. Some historians such as Charles and Mary Beard have argued that domestic economic policies were the true impetus for the Civil War, not slavery. Indeed, the passage of the Morrill tariffs through the House preceded the secession of the Southern states. After the Southern delegates withdrew from Congress, the moral bill easily swept through the Senate without opposition and was confirmed as law. Just a month later, Fort Sumter was fired upon, and the war was on. The apt comparison has also been made that the secession of the South in 1860 was just a large-scale nullification crisis, mirroring what South Carolina attempted back in 1832. This argument, however, has not been given much credence by mainstream historians. For one, the South didn't endorse the free trade presidential candidate Stephen Douglas, and for two, Southern senators would have had a reasonable chance of defeating the moral tariffs had they not seceded first. Interestingly, the South attempted to sway the British into the war onto the Confederate side by hanging the carrot of free trade in front of them. For their part, the British were vexed. On one hand, the British reviled the moral tariffs for what it did to the price of British goods being sold in America. But on the other, the British at this point in history were thoroughly anti-slavery. The British ultimately decided against siding with the Confederates, upholding their hatred for slavery above their desires for free trade. To wrap this episode up, we discussed what tariffs are, their taxes on imported goods, and talked about how they can be revenue-generating, protectionist-oriented, or both. Low tariffs are generally more revenue-oriented for the federal government, while high tariffs are more protectionist-oriented towards domestic industry. Though, depending on the price and demand elasticity of goods leading into a tariff, this isn't always the case, but generally speaking it is. So tariffs can protect domestic industry and raise government revenue, but on the flip side, tariffs mean goods cost more for consumers, and they can induce trade wars, and they reduce the need for businesses to innovate, and they create inefficiencies in the market called the deadweight loss. Throughout antebellum U.S. economic history, the South regularly opposed tariffs while the North regularly desired them. It was the North, after all, whose industries had to compete with foreign-made goods, while the South held a virtual global monopoly on cotton production and benefited little from tariffs. This division has been cited as a causal agent behind the Civil War in the 1860s. Though I would agree it was a factor, it wasn't everything, as we'll explore when we get to the episode on slavery and capitalism. In the next episode, we'll jump back into the story of U.S. economics and pick up where we left off, with America's first post-revolutionary war financial crisis. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at U.S.